Hey everyone, back again. Today I want to talk about Eve Tuck's essay titled Breaking Up with Deleuze, which is one of the more interesting thematically organized essays I've ever written. And yeah, so we'll get into it. So, hey, if you're new here, I'm David. I explain philosophical concepts and ideas in ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, you can see my 300 episodes I already have up. You can subscribe and see videos I release every week, sometimes twice a week. You can like the videos. That would help a lot. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form pretty much anywhere you get podcasts under the same title. And that's, you know, you can just listen then. If you found this on a podcast platform, you're going to be able to find the video of it on YouTube. Uh, if you're into that at all, you can help me out by liking, sharing, subscribing. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. You can follow me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy, and you can find links for these things in the description. So yeah, let's jump into Eve Tuck's Breaking up with Deleuze. Now this is also going to coincide with my end to my serious attention to post-colonial studies because I spent quite the last few months just really diving into post-colonial texts, which is something I've done before. I've always been covering post-colonial texts, at least texts that fall into the domain of post-colonialism, and I will continue to into the future. But this is going to mark my end of like a very specific engagement with those texts. And this is a good one because despite the title that is Breaking Up with Deleuze, it is a text very much informed by Tuck's own indigenous background that we'll get into a little bit as we go through this, and the applicability of Deleuze's thought and the problems of Deleuze's thought and Guattari's, really, we gotta, can't forget Guattari, Guattari's thought in understanding uh, indigenous people and indigenous relations with colonial states. Now, Eve Tuck begins her essay by really meditating on just how enlightening and confounding Deleuze and Guattari's writing is. On the one hand, you know, you can find yourself reading it and it can make total sense and you really find that it resonates with your experience in the world, your observations of the world and everything else about it, the way you think about the world. But, it, uh, you know, at other times you can really find yourself confused, uh, which is an experience I certainly have when digging into Deleuze and Guattari's work. Uh, and if you want more on Deleuze and Guattari, I've covered the entirety of Anti-Oedipus uh, and A Thousand Plateaus. You can go check out episodes on that. I'm currently debating whether or not to do What is Philosophy. The only reason I haven't is because I just find it too difficult, which might seem strange. Uh, but I've also covered cinema, thanks to one of my friends helping me through it. Anyways, you can go check out those if you like, but the point that I'm trying to really emphasize here is just how difficult Deleuze and Guattari's work is, because it just rubs up against and contradicts much of what I believe we are programmed to believe about the world in the way that we are socialized in a democratic capitalist world, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but they are offering us alternatives, maybe not necessarily against democracy, but alternatives to the ways in which we imagine collectivities, we imagine possibility in this world. But in her experience of reading Deleuze and Guattari, Tuck found that she was often misattributing ideas to them, where she would be thinking and try to re recall and try to find an idea she thought she'd actually read in Deleuze and Guattari, but would often realize that it was actually her idea. Maybe it was an idea that, that came from reading them, maybe it wasn't, but in any case she found herself 
being somewhat dissatisfied with what Deleuze and Guattari, mostly, I guess, specifically Deleuze, was offering her in understanding the world through her own epistemic framework and her own uh, her own understanding of the world through her own knowledge base. Now, specifically, she was searching within Deleuze's work for an acknowledgement of how desire can be insightful, agentic, productive, meaningful. And we're going to get into this as we go on, but for now, suffice it to say that in Deleuze's work, desire is somewhat of a chaotic thing that doesn't necessarily embody or engender knowledges from the past. Now, we're going to problematize that a little bit, and Tuck does, uh, but just for now, keep that idea on the back burner. Now, as far as the actual structure of the essay goes and the title, Tuck frames it as though she's breaking up with Deleuze. And it's broken down into subsections, like the different phases of going through a breakup, like sending each other letters, like uh, distributing uh, the things that you owned, having like the possibility of moving forward, thinking about moving forward, having anger towards the other person. And she breaks up her essay with all of these uh, subtitles and it's, it's super interesting and I just never read anything like this, but she uses them as a way to, um, I guess to formalize her separation from Deleuze and to ultimately find find solace and find comfort in the very irreconcilable nature of their relationship. She finds that they just have to go at the end in their separate ways because they're just doing different things, even though she wants so desperately to be able to find that thing she's looking for in Deleuze. And for anyone in a relationship, it's not fair to impose that someone give you what you want in a relationship, which is exactly why she has to depart from Deleuze. So she begins with a trip down memory lane, as many of us do. If we uh, go through a breakup, you know, you, you romanticize it. You look back, not at all the bad parts, the parts where you struggled in the relationship, but you think about all the good things, which make it makes it that much harder to actually break up. Now, Tuck was actually introduced, firstly, to the work of Deleuze through uh, a graduate course she had taken with Eve Sedgwick, which is pretty boss. I mean, Eve Sedgwick is a, a monolithic figure in, in the domain of like uh, gender studies, queer studies, anti-psychoanalytic, um, psychologies or anti anti-eatable uh, psychoanalysis might be the way to frame it or yeah anything like that. Eve Sedgwick is just um, a monolithic figure in these fields and it's pretty cool that Tuck was taking courses with her but anyways Tuck was first introduced to Deleuze through Sedgwick and she found herself totally enamored by him like a first like crush like love at first sight type thing because she was obsessed with understanding. She really desperately wanted to know what Deleuze was all about. She found herself inserting his language into her everyday discussions, which probably alienated people. Maybe maybe it made people not like her so much because some of Deleuze's language can be uh, very stubbornly inaccessible. But in any case, she was doing that. She found herself redrawing the diagrams that are found in Deleuze and Guattari's work, which if anyone's not familiar, they're quite chaotic. They often just look like uh, just etchings by somebody who closed their eyes and took a pen and just scribbled around. But she found herself just totally obsessed with grappling with the complexities of Deleuze and Guattari's thought, to understanding their thought. And in it, she found something of an antidote to what are often the reduction or what is often the reduction of very complicated 
things in the world, complicated phenomena, complicated relations, to binaries, like reducing um, the world to a simple class struggle between workers and the bourgeois, the owners of the means of production, or reducing psychology to, like in the case of psychoanalysis, reducing it to uh, the dynamic of the family, where you are going to be determined as a social being, as a social being in the world, by the relationship that you had with your parents. Specifically, if you were born uh, into being a boy, if you were a boy, you're going to have, a, have to have a certain relationship with your mother and your father versus if you were a girl. And it's just, she found all this very reductive. And in Deleuze and Guattari, there is undoubtedly, undoubtedly, undoubtedly a complication, an effort to problematize such a simple prefiguring or such a simple understanding of these very complicated dynamics. Now, of all the many ideas that emerge in Deleuze and Guattari's thought, she was really drawn to the idea of the rhizome. And I've done an episode specifically on the rhizome. If you're curious, you can just type what is a rhizome and you'll find it. But what she found interesting about it was the way in which the rhizome never resolves itself. There's no final endpoint to the rhizome. It is just a series of endless connections that is never satisfied in the connections that it's made and will just go on potentially forever, never reconciling itself into a single unitary whole that can be uh, managed, understood, observed, put under the microscope. It's always going to evade capture. Now at the time, she was also trying to uh, mount a critique to damage-centered research, which to put it really simply, damage-centered research was a way to try and understand how people who have undergone trauma, people in communities who have undergone trauma, let's say in the case of like a war, how they are expected to revisit and retell or to just tell their trauma to people who will act as adjudicators to the amount of money, resources that these people who have undergone trauma should receive. So they are expected within damage-centered research, they are expected to relive their trauma so that some ostensibly neutral observer can determine the degree to which that trauma actually affected them and how much money and resources they should receive. Now Tuck is, was mounting this critique against damage-centered research because it was just, for, for a few reasons, it reduced people to the status of victims. And while it is important to acknowledge that indeed there are victims in the world, they should not be reduced to that status. People find very beautiful, very courageous ways to deal with and to manage experiences of oppression in ways that complicate a simple identification as being victims. And to do so is to take away their agency to some extent. It's important though, still acknowledge that harms are inflicted, but not to reduce people to the status of victims. Now, additionally, there's something just problematic about the idea that somebody from the outside can just be this like judge and jury to decide how people are to receive uh, compensation for you know injustices that they've experienced, which is you know just perpetuating global hierarchies, often where you have the quote unquote West distributing resources to people in other parts of the world that are, you know, believed to be quote unquote underdeveloped or the third world quote unquote. Now in opposition to this, she was interested in the way that communities and people actually told stories of survival and survivance and how these problematized their 
simple characterization or their simple illustration as being victims. And she used Deleuze, or Deleuze was useful for her in this way, because Deleuze complicates any unitary identity category to say that these people are just like victims, these people are just uh, oppressors. Now, again, it's important to acknowledge that injustices indeed occur. It is important to also acknowledge how complicated these categories are, these identities are. And so she puts forward what she calls a desire-based approach to understanding these types of conflicts and post-conflict resolution in such settings in which violence has ensued. To understand this, it's important to unpack what exactly she means by desire, i.e. what Deleuze and Guattari mean by desire. Now, I don't have hours and hours and hours to unpack this. If you want more on this, just check out probably the first episode I did on Anti-Oedipus, where they really developed this. Uh, that right off the bat in Anti-Oedipus, they're just explaining what desiring production is and what desiring machines are. But to put it really simply, Deleuze and Guattari sought to propose an idea, an approach to desire, that differed from the psychoanalytic version of desire. Now the psychoanalytic version of desire was informed by a belief that desire is motivated by a desire or a wanting to satisfy a lack. So in the psychoanalytic paradigm, one such belief is that women experience penis envy because they don't have a penis. And so they live their lives always in the shadow of men, trying to aspire to fill that void, that lack. And this motivates them in the world, and this is what characterizes and frames their desire and how they are beings who desire. They're people who desire in that way. Now for Deleuze and Guattari, they're not satisfied in this. They think that that is much too reductive to understand people, like all of people's uh, emotional drives, their complex uh, beliefs, their, their wants, their needs, reduce it to these single wants. Like in the case of women, in the example that I just gave, according to you know, Freudian psychoanalysis, that women just want uh, a penis and then, then that'll be it, which is, of course, extremely problematic belief. But in any case, that's the, the Freudian idea. Deleuze and Guattari want to instead understand desire as being something much more complicated and something that exerts itself on a microscopic or microcellular level. Where it's just not that we are, or it's not just that we are unitary wholes with unitary absences that we are trying to fulfill. Instead, Deleuze and Guattari suggest that we are actually comprised of many different parts. We are comprised of many different people, which might seem strange. But to put it really simply, we often shift our language depending on who we talk to. Like this is a very mundane example. Uh, you know, they get, get into this a lot more in, the, in their books, but in any case, to be very simple, we act completely differently depending on who we're talking to. Me talking to you here, very different person than me talking to my parents, me talking to my friends, me talking to um, my cat. My, I have two cats, I can't erase one of them. Uh, me talking to my cats, totally different people. And so each of these people for Deleuze and Guattari would have their own desires, their own drives. Now, this is only at the level of personality. Additionally, they go so far as to say that each one of our body parts, our organs, each one of our cells undergoes its own kind of desiring, where it seeks to make connections with other parts of ourselves, other parts of other people, 
to form connections that will eventually disconnect and separate, and that's okay, and then form a connection with something else. So one example they give is in the case of a baby drinking breast milk. So in that instance, what you have is a mouth machine for the Dodongutari, they call these, uh, these things making contact machines, a mouth machine connecting with a nipple machine, and through them flows the milk machine, milk flow, that is going to provide sustenance to the baby, and then it's going to disconnect, and then the baby, or the mouth machine of the baby, is going to connect to the celery machine, if it's eating celery. I don't know, that's probably too young for a baby, but anyways, you, I think you get the point, that there are these different machines, and they each have their own different drives. In that instance, the baby's mouth is performing the function, a desire that it wants in that instance, while its eyes are perhaps looking all over the room trying to satisfy its own desire. The eyes are trying to connect with other machines in the room. The ceiling machine, the parent's face machine, the clothing machine, maybe there's an animal around, the animal machine the baby's just looking at. And so what we see here is a complication of desire, not to be reducible to single full things, but instead to many different parts that themselves are not totally reducible. They are not, um, I believe the term is hexidity, which I can never pronounce right, uh, hexidity, hexidity. Anyways, people often yell at me in the comments for mispronouncing it, but it's a term that refers to something totally reduced to its parts, to say like this is like if you stripped all the crap down, like what a thing is in itself. And if you do that with a human, you find it's comprised of all of these different, these different parts. And these different parts are themselves going to be comprised of different parts, each with their own desire. So desiring is not just a purely neutral thing that just occurs, you know, haphazardly in the world as though nothing else can affect it. Of course, broader systems can have a part. The social situation in which you find yourself is going to place somewhat limitations on how you can how, you, how your desiring machines are going to engage with one another. Where in the case of an oppressive, uh, an oppressive patriarchal regime, somebody breastfeeding their child is going to be expected to not do it in public because it's seen as being derogatory for some reason to very sensitive people. And they're going to be expected to either cover up or to do it in private places. And so in that setting, a certain desiring machine can't connect with another one. And a desiring connection cannot happen. So we can see then how different social situations can affect how desiring is actually going to unfold and how it is going to play out. Now Deleuze and Guattari are particularly interested in their texts about the way that desire is both liberated and foreclosed under late capitalism. So what they say is that capitalism is a system in which, at least on the surface, pretends as though there's infinite possibility. You know, workers are liberated. They are rhizomatic almost. They, can, they, they are believed to be able to go wherever the money is. Capital sees no limits either. It'll just pursue any means of acquiring more of itself as it can. So borders don't mean anything. Uh, any other restrictions don't really mean anything. Now that's really just on the surface. Where in the case of capital, capitalism, Deleuze and Guattari are also clear that there is a simultaneous restructuring going on, a kind of secret, or not so secret, secret structural edifice that keeps the entire system structured and keeps it afloat. Because if it was truly all free floating, then it would, it would crumble into the sea. 
some of these institutions are that keep it keep it afloat that are quite strict and rigid are the family are nation states are religions that allow very little our, our gender roles that try to limit the possible flows of desire that might be able to actually exist in, in, in a world. So in their words, they suggest that under capitalism, what it deterritorializes with one hand, which is to say what it liberates, what it frees, apparently, it re-territorializes with the other. So there's always a kind of balance somewhat between the two now. Uh, you know, someone who's read a lot of uh, Deleuze and Guattari might suggest that it's actually gone out of balance. But in any case, there's a kind of balancing that is ensuing between the two to keep the system afloat. So she uses a desire-based approach like this to really understand the complexity of different people in different settings and how they're desiring their beliefs, their approaches, their understanding of themselves within periods of conflict are going to be extremely complicated. And it's important to open up possible dialogue, to open up the opportunity to allow people to express themselves and to not reduce their narratives to a prefabricated lens like psychoanalysis to say for example if someone's undergone a trauma to say that oh well you know xyz things are going to cure you if you just maybe if you had a proper relationship with your parents this might have never happened or you know something silly like that or yeah anything like that that would just totally reduce the complexity of any given situation. Now in the text she also considers like the experience of writing letters to loved ones and here she considers the relationship between Deleuze and Foucault and she's quite funny about this she's she's like she was never jealous of Foucault even though Deleuze had this strong friendship with Foucault she always thought that she you know they they were they were just friends you know she never she never had to had to worry or she even she intimates she's like um, intellectual, intellectually polyamorous. So, you know, there's no concern there. Between Deleuze and Foucault, they don't really seem to agree totally on everything, uh, yet they, they do agree on a fair amount. And one of the things that they would probably agree on is the way in which the power has been distributed to such an extent that it makes it very difficult to identify, to be able to say that, you know, power's over there. And, uh, and then that's, you know, if we just overthrow that, then everything will be good. Power has been distributed to such an extent that it has somewhat been diluted and it's very difficult to identify at times. Now in all this though, it's quite obvious to tell who doesn't have power. You know, people who are victims to power, people who are exploited economically, people who are exploited on the basis of their gender, of the race, for example. Their experiences of power will certainly have an effect on who they are and is going to have an effect on their place in the world. But again, it's important not to reduce people to entire homogenous broad categories. Now, when it comes to the discussion of desire, however, Deleuze and Foucault seem to split, where Deleuze seems to suggest that desiring, as I've laid it out really, sets the stage for the production of reality itself, where every part of us undergoes a kind of desiring, make connections with other desiring machines, and this is gonna just make up the fabric of reality itself. Everything is trying to desire other things and make connections with these other things. Formulate it's all, it's kind of, underwrites all relationships, all thought, everything. Now Foucault has a problem with this because he sees desire as being something much more enigmatic. Desire is for him something that is always never fully achieved. Desire is something that happens at the outer, outer edges of thought, where you think about something, you know, you, you theorize about something, and desire is never fully attained for Foucault. And he, he prefers instead 
to use a term like pleasure. Now, pleasure is a complicated term, and it's not something that I think Deleuze and Guattari would, are totally satisfied with. So at the end of The History of Sexuality, Volume 1, Foucault makes the claim that we should focus not on sex and sexuality, but instead on bodies and pleasure. So Foucault is kind of suggesting that there is a way to get underneath or to get past what are culturally determined codes on how do you present yourself sexually, how you engage as a sexual being, uh, how, you, how you present your sex. But then underneath that, there is a, an unchanging body and pleasures that that body might be able to enjoy. And he wants to get there. Now, I think that that's much too neat for Deleuze. Deleuze doesn't think that there's like a very clear uh, split between the two. And I don't think it's so easy as to say that you can just renounce one in favor of the other. But in any case, Foucault would prefer this rhetoric of pleasure versus desire. Now here she meditates on the experience of separating the ownership of things that you've owned with someone you're breaking up with. And here she reflects on her own indigenous heritage, being spe specifically a Nunangax person from uh, their, the, these are people from what is colonial Alaska, like I think part of colonial Alaska and also a little bit uh, west, like toward Russia, you know, you don't, it's hard to think of Russia as west considering the way that our maps are constructed, but west of uh, Alaska, you can find um, Nungaks people there. Now she inf she's informed by her own, you know, her own position as an Nungaks person. Uh, I don't believe she grew up there. I think she grew up in the States. Um, but she still has a very firm connection with her, with her heritage, her, her ancestors, uh, very much a part of her life. And she, th th this really informs her view of the world and her approach to Deleuze and Guattari. And she really positions herself as being a, as uh, participating in a methodology of repatriation, which she defines as participatory action resource, re research in connection with decolonizing methodologies. And part of the task of this, uh, this approach is to view, grapple with contradictions within the colonial state, within colonial institutions, specifically at the expense of indigenous people and communities. However, this approach seems to fall short in its applicability to Deleuze and Foucault's thought because they don't view society as being totally contradictory. In fact, you know, for Foucault, society works perfectly in that it is just going to organize its own principles and it's going to operate in such a way as to maintain itself like, strategically. And for Deleuze, he kind of identifies that the system itself, any kind of social system, is going to be organized rhizomatically through, a sort, uh, through the liberation of flows and desires as best as it can while structuring others. And so it is just going to be guided by its own principles that are themselves therefore not contradictory. Now in contrast to this, Tuck wants Deleuze, and, and she found herself looking for points in which Deleuze would say that desire is not just a kind of immediate uh, happening in the world, but rather desire can be informed by the past, where desiring is something that can be, uh, can learn. Desire can be purposeful, it can be agentic, it can be meaningful. And this is important for her because she draws much of her own knowledge by, from those uh, bestowed upon her by her ancestors, from her grandmother specifically. That, were, that informed her way to understand the world. And so the way that she was actually able to exist in the world was motivated by these previous knowledges. And she sees a value in understanding Deleuze and Guattari's approach to desire and really applying it, but also trying to leave room 
for the fact that these desires are going to be informed by history and are going to uh, resonate with some people in certain ways that are a lot more meaningful than to others. And we do see, uh, or Tuck identifies, that we we see glimmers of this in Deleuze when he identifies a sort of revolutionary potential found in the connection of various certain machines, as though they are geared in such a way as to permit revolutionary action and, and potential, which he, she really celebrates as being evidence of this propensity of desire to have a history, to, to be purposeful, to want to fight against oppression as being innately wrong. Now, this breakup with Deleuze also encouraged her to think about the ways in which their thought, their, their idea about the rhizome specifically, is not really there, was not really theirs to give. And she reflects on the fact that her own people, uh, you know, had these very firm ideas about the unpredictability of like root systems in that they use as a as a way to understand the rhizome as a, as a, as the rhizome itself. So she suggests that these ideas predate them, and they've really monopolized that conversation. And this is something I've heard too, where like uh, in in graduate courses where you know discussing indigenous studies and people. Uh, saying, like mostly white dudes saying like, oh, we need Deleuze and Guattari to understand this, as though that's the only legitimate way to understand indigenous knowledges, indigenous philosophies of the world. Moreover, she has an issue with broader, you know, quote-unquote post-structuralist claims against identity in favor of, you know, free-flowing identity categories, which threatens to erase indigenous identities, potential projects for indigenous sovereignty, decolonization, and so on. But in all this, she still manages to find value in Deleuze's work and is happy with being irreconcilable with Deleuze. And she finds peace in that, in her final breaking up with Deleuze. And yeah, I hope that that was enlightening. It's, it's a great essay. I, I highly recommend you go read it um, if you can access it. It's, uh, it's not too difficult to, to read, which is, always, which is always nice, while at the same time being difficult to read. So... Maybe I said that too soon. But yeah, go check it out. I, I highly recommend it. If there's anything I, I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. And yeah, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends, and I'll catch you next time. Take care.